Glory to Jesus Christ and welcome to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast brought to you by Theosis Academy and the Orientale Lumen Foundation. In this podcast, we will feature weekly lectures from the late great Metropolitan Callistus of Diocleia. So please be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's recording is taken from Metropolitan Callistus Ware's course, Churches of the Christian East. The lecture itself is titled The Sacraments. If you enjoy the lecture, you can get unlimited access to the complete course online at theosisacademy.org. Now for Metropolitan Callistos of Diocleia. St. Nicholas Cavasilas observes it is the sacraments that constitute the life in Christ. So let us speak now about the sacraments, or as they are called in the Greek tradition, the mysteries which constitute our Christian path. We've already looked at different aspects of Orthodox theology when I was discussing the seven ecumenical councils. I was able to outline the main aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the person of Christ. In more recent talks, I have touched upon the orthodox understanding of the Church. And I have said a few things about the human person. So now let us turn to the different mysteries in which we participate. St. John Chrysostom remarks of the sacraments in general, they are called mysteries because what we see is not the same as what we believe. And he goes on to observe, in the case of baptism, the believer is washed with water and that is all that the unbeliever knows and sees. But the reality of the sacrament is that the one baptized is cleansed of all sin and enters on a new life, a hidden meaning. Equally, says St. John Chrysostom, at the Eucharist, the unbeliever sees us eating bread and drinking wine, but we are, in fact, receiving the body and blood of Christ. In the traditional definition of a sacrament, found in different forms both in East and West, it is said that a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So, essentially in the sacrament you have the outer and the inner. A sign, but it is more than simply a reminder or a visual presentation. A sacrament is an effective sign. 
it conveys that which it signifies. The Orthodox Church fundamentally has the same list of seven sacraments as the Catholic West. Baptism, chrismation or confirmation, Eucharist, confession, holy orders, marriage, and anointing of the sick. Perhaps in the Orthodox Church, less importance is attached to the number seven. Within the list of those seven sacraments, there are different levels. Baptism and Eucharist are the two primary sacraments and have a more central significance than, say, the anointing of the sick. Equally, there are outside that list of seven many other sacramental actions which are also outward and visible actions which confer uh, an inner grace. You could include among the sacraments, if you wished, monastic profession. Equally, you might include the burial rites. And in the past, the anointing of an emperor was considered to be a sacrament. Unfortunately, at the present moment, we haven't got an anointed Christian monarch. Not in the Orthodox Church. Here in England, we are fortunate to have an anointed monarch, but uh, she is an Anglican. Let us then look at these sacraments. Baptism. In the Orthodox Church, this is now conferred in infancy. Adult baptism began to drop out in the 4th and 5th century in the Church. So it is normal for the child of Orthodox parents to be baptized within a few weeks of birth. Though that tends to be um, a practice of postponing baptism a little, maybe not be done until a few months. The outward act of baptism is the plunging of the baby into the font. Three times the baby is immersed, three times lifted from the font. As the priest says, the servant of God, in the name John or Mary, is baptized in the name of the Father, Amen, one dunking, in the name of the Son, and of the Son, a second dunking, and of the Holy Spirit, a third immersion.
some people think that immersion should be carried out fully, that the head of the baby should be plunged right underneath the water. The font is large enough to do that in the orthodox practice. Others would say it is sufficient if water flows over the whole body of the one baptized. So the baby might be sat in the font and have water plentifully poured over its head. The baby will be stripped naked for baptism. There are other ceremonies in baptism, an anointing with oil, for example, immediately before the child is plunged in the water. Today, adult baptism is becoming rather more frequent. People join the Orthodox Church who've never been baptized in infancy. So many of our Orthodox churches in the West do have large baptismal fonts where a grown-up person can descend into the waters and can be plunged beneath them. In some parts of the Orthodox Church, immersion has been reduced to just pouring water over the head of the candidate. But that is incorrect and should be discouraged. I will not mention those Orthodox churches where this tends to happen, but it does not happen in the Greek church. I am happy to record. What is then the spiritual meaning of this plunging in the waters and rising up again? The first and obvious meaning is that the candidate is washed clean of all her or his sins. Baptism signifies washing. The baptismal font is a bath. Why then baptize a tiny baby who is not guilty of any sins? Because we are all of us affected by original sin, by inherited sin. We are born into a fallen world and from our birth we are involved in that fallenness. So in the case of a baby, the child is cleansed of original sin even if he or she has no actual sin. Beyond the idea of washing, baptism has a further significance. It represents death and burial with Christ and resurrection with Christ. The plunging in the water signifies death and burial 
rising up from the water signifies resurrection. So baptism is sharing in the cross and the empty tomb, the two great events in Christ's life. In baptism, says St. Nicholas Cavasilas, we die and we come alive again. One life ends and a new life begins. We die to the fallen world, to the world of sin and death. And we rise again with Christ to new life within the church. This idea of baptism as sharing in Christ's death and resurrection is underlined in Romans chapter 4. And this is the fundamental meaning of baptism. In most Western churches, though not in all, immersion has now come to be omitted. Baptism is performed just by pouring a little water over the head, or worse still, just by smearing through a wet with a wet finger a little water on the forehead, making the sign of the cross. That is inadequate. The proper correspondence between the outward sign and the inner grace is impaired in this way. The idea of burial and resurrection going down into the waters, coming out again afterwards, that is lost. In the Orthodox Church, if the candidate is in danger of death, if for reasons of health it would not be prudent to plunge the baby right into the font, then it is permitted by what we call economy, economia, to perform the baptism just by pouring a little water. But this should be done only in exceptional circumstances. It should not, on our orthodox understanding, be made the normal practice. Baptism with immersion is the norm. If it is reduced to a mere pouring, that is a response to an emergency. But smearing water with a finger, that is not to be considered true baptism. So then, that is the beginning of our new life in Christ, our life in the church. And baptism is the foundation of all Christian life. In baptism, we are cleansed of sin and we receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. What greater gift could there be than that? From one point of view, the whole ascetic and mystical life is simply a working out of the consequences of our baptism. A working out of this gift of the Spirit, this renewal in Christ. In baptism, 
we then die and rise with Christ, and it is often said we put on Christ, as is stated by St. Paul in the Epistle to the Galatians. All of you who have been baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ, have put on Christ. So, in a sense, everything is given in baptism, and we can never add to the grace of baptism but we can uh, come more and more to experience consciously what we received if we were baptized as babies in an unconscious way. So the whole Christian journey could be summed up as moving from grace, the grace of baptism, present, secretly and unconsciously, to the grace of baptism, experienced with full conscious awareness. We could sum up the Christian life in the phrase, become what you are. After baptism, and normally as part of the same service, a second sacrament or mystery is conferred upon the newly baptized. And this is called chrismation. Chrism is a special ointment. It has its basis in olive oil, but to the olive oil many spices are added. And it's usually a thick liquid, fragrant, dark brown in colour. So we are anointed then after baptism with the Holy Chrism. This corresponds to the Western sacrament of confirmation. In the West, usually confirmation is not conferred until the age of eight or nine, or in the Anglican tradition, perhaps not till 14 or 15. But in the Orthodox Church, baptism and confirmation are not separated. The anointing with chrism takes the form that the priest, usually with a little wand, anoints the newly baptized on the different parts of the body, on the forehead, the eyes, on the lips, the nose, the ears, on the breast, on the hands and on the feet. And as he does so, he says, the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Sometimes people make a simple distinction and say, in baptism we put on Christ, and in confirmation or chrismation we are marked with the seal of the Spirit. We can't make quite such a sharp distinction as that. St. Irenaeus speaks of Christ and the Holy Spirit as the two hands of God, and God is always using both his hands together. You 
cannot separate Christ from the Spirit or the Spirit from Christ. We could not receive Christ without the Spirit or the Spirit without Christ. So already in baptism, we not only are baptized in Christ, but the Spirit descends upon us, as it did upon Christ himself when he was baptized in the Jordan by John. The heavens were opened, and the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. The same thing happens to us at our baptism, invisibly. But it could be said, while both Christ and the Spirit are conferred in baptism, and in chrismation, when we are sealed with the Spirit, that means we are also united with Christ. It could be said that there is a certain difference of emphasis. In baptism, the emphasis is mainly on Christ, but not exclusively, and in chrismation, mainly on the Spirit, but not exclusively. In our baptism, we are united with Christ who was baptized in the Jordan. In our chrismation, we are anointed with the grace of the Holy Spirit that descended on the 50th day, the day of Pentecost on the disciples in the upper room. So, chrismation is our personal Pentecost. The Holy Spirit who descended in tongues of fire on the disciples in the upper room descends upon each one of us at our chrismation, invisibly, but with no less reality and power. So, through chrismation, we are made spirit bearers. Each of us is anointed to be prophet, priest, and king. Through chrismation, joined with baptism, we become members of the royal priesthood. St. Peter says, you are a holy priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9. There is the ministerial priesthood of the ordained, which we shall speak of shortly, but there is also the universal priesthood of all the baptized. Through chrismation, we are each of us made responsible for the faith. We are not to imagine that it is only bishops or clergy who are the guardians of holy tradition. All those baptized and chrismated by virtue of the gift of the Spirit are called to be witnesses to Christ. All are made personally responsible for the faith. Bishops have a special teaching ministry and this is delegated also to the clergy. But we, all the laity, as well as the clergy, are guardians of the faith, called to defend it and bear witness to it as occasion may arise. Sometimes in the West, a distinction used to be made between the teaching church and the taught church. We do not accept such a distinction. All of us 
are called on occasion to be teachers, to share our faith with others. There, is, there are no passive spectators in the church. We are all actively involved. And it is the sacrament of chrismation that gives us the power to fulfill our role as members of the laity. Sometimes people define the laity in a negative way. If you are a lay person, that means you're not a priest. You're not specially trained in theology. You don't have any special duty to preach or teach. This negative tradition, uh, definition is sadly inadequate. To be a lay person is to be a member of the holy people of God, a sharer in the royal priesthood. After baptism, there is the third and greatest sacrament, the mystery of all mysteries, Holy Communion, the Eucharist. In the Orthodox practice, communion is given to the newly baptized baby immediately after baptism and chrismation. The receiving of communion is not reserved until we are seven or eight or 14 or 15. From the very beginning of our life in Christ, we are full members, communicants. Communion is given in the Orthodox Church to the laity in a spoon. To grown-ups, there would be both a particle of the holy bread in the spoon and a little of the wine that is the precious blood. To a tiny baby, you would just give communion under the form of wine because the total Christ is present in every part of the Eucharist, in the smallest crumb of consecrated bread, in every drop of the precious blood, the total Christ is present. And so while in the Orthodox Church we normally give communion under both kinds, bread and wine together, yet the baby, if it cannot yet digest bread, will be still receiving the total undivided Christ. So the sacraments of baptism, confirmation or chrismation, and first communion are joined together in the practice of the Christian East. In becoming members of the church through baptism, we become at the same time full members, communicants. An Orthodox Christian will grow up from his earliest years remembering how he receives communion. How first as a baby when he didn't, wouldn't remember it, he would be brought to communion, but then as a little child he would continue to come up on his own feet to be given the Holy Sacrament. 
to us the communion of tiny children is important. As Christ said, suffer the little children to come to me, for of, of these is the kingdom of heaven. Now the sacrament of the Eucharist in the Christian East is quite a lengthy and elaborate service. Basically, we celebrate what is known as the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. But on about a dozen occasions in the Church's year, we celebrate the Liturgy of St. Basil. Fundamentally, these two liturgies are the same, but the prayers, the priest's prayers, in the Liturgy of St. Basil are a good deal longer. The Anglicans, I think, talk about right A and right B. Well, John Chrysostom is our right A and Basil is our right B. It is not to be supposed that St. John Chrysostom and St. Basil wrote the liturgies in exactly the form that we have them now. The liturgy is the result of a lengthy process of development not brought to full completion until the 14th century, though the main outlines of the public service were as they are now by about the 9th century. But the rite of preparation of the holy gifts evolved in later centuries. But probably the basic prayers in both liturgies do go back to the saints whose names they bear, to St. Basil and St. John Chrysostom themselves. Alongside the two liturgies, Basil and John Chrysostom, there is also a third rite which is known as the Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified Gifts. In this third case, there is no consecration of the bread and wine during the service, but communion is given following the service of Vespers from the gifts already consecrated on the previous Sunday. The Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified Gifts is celebrated on weekdays in Lent. The liturgy is always a triumphant event, a celebration. And so the full liturgy is felt to be inappropriate for the days of fasting. In modern Orthodox practice, usually the Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified is celebrated only on Wednesdays and Fridays and a few other days and on the first three days of Holy Week. In principle, though, it could be celebrated on any day in Lent. On Good Friday itself, we have no celebration of the Eucharist, either of the full liturgy or of the pre-sanctified gifts, unless 
Good Friday happens to correspond with the Feast of the Annunciation, in which case the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom is celebrated. Now, the divine liturgy in the Christian East, as in the Christian West, has two main sections. There is first a service of praise and prayer and scripture reading, and then secondly, the Eucharist itself. In Orthodox practice today, and in that of the other Eastern churches, in each half of the service, there is a high point, and in each half, there is a procession which leads up to that high point. First, you have the liturgy of the Word, and the high point here is the reading of the Gospel. And somewhat before the reading of the Gospel, there is a procession in the Greek use, right round the church, in which the gospel book is carried on high. Then you have the reading of the epistle, the reading of the gospel, perhaps the sermon after the gospel, though often the sermon is postponed to the end of the service and further prayers before the first part, the Liturgy of the Word, comes to an end. Then you have the second part of the service, the Sacrament of the Eucharist proper. The high point here is the consecration of the Holy Gifts followed by Holy Communion. And before that you have another procession, known as the Great Entrance, when the priest carries the gifts of bread and wine, the pattern or plate and the chalice covered with veils, the bread and wine have been prepared before the beginning of the main service in the rite of preparation. And they are then carried to the holy table in procession through the church. This is one of the most impressive moments in the liturgy. And this procession then leads up to the great prayer of consecration. And this prayer of consecration in the Eastern Rites has three main moments. First of all, there is a lengthy prayer blessing God for all the gifts of creation, and then calling to mind the incarnation of Christ, and more particularly, the Last Supper. And in this part of the consecration prayer, or the anaphora as it is known, the words of institution, take, eat, this is my body and drink of it all of you, this is my blood, are always said aloud. Often the anaphora 
in Orthodox practice today is said in a low voice by the priest, not in the hearing of the people, while the choir are singing. But increasingly, in many churches, we are saying the prayers of the Eucharist aloud. And that is a good practice. The people should hear the theology of the Eucharist. But in any case, the words of Christ at the Last Supper are always said aloud. Then comes the second moment in the anaphora, the offering of the holy gifts to God the Father. We say, as the priest lifts the holy gifts, he proclaims, Thine own, from thine own, we offer to thee, in all things and for all things. We offer to you that which is yours. So we offer to God the bread and wine that we have set apart. And together with this offering of bread and wine, we offer ourselves. And as we offer, we call to mind the great events of our salvation. The birth of Christ, his death and resurrection. We also say that we remember his second and dread coming again. So we do not just remember the past, we remember the future the final consummation, the parousia. The Eucharist is the feast of the eighth day of the age to come. After this act of remembering and offering comes the third moment when we call down the Holy Spirit upon the gifts. We Pray to God the Father to send down his Spirit on the bread and wine and to make them the body and blood of Christ. Orthodox put particular emphasis on this third element, the epiclesis or invocation of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes Catholics put the main emphasis on the words of institution. This is my body, this is my blood. In reality, there is no opposition here between East and West, because the Eucharistic prayer is a single unity. We are not to imagine the consecration is effected just by a verbal formula which can be isolated. The consecration is effected by the total anaphora. Notice, however, the emphasis in the Eastern Christian rite, the emphasis upon the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. After we have received communion, we say in a hymn of thanksgiving, we have received the Heavenly Spirit. So, Holy Communion is indeed communion in the body and blood of Christ. 
but it is also communion in the Holy Spirit. We should not forget the Pentecostal, pneumatological aspect of the Eucharist. The two hands of God always go together. On the Orthodox belief, the Eucharist is the true body and blood of Christ. Some Orthodox use the Latin term transubstantiation. Others feel that this is too much linked with scholastic theology, and they prefer simply to say, we believe in the real presence of Christ. We are agreed, however, Orthodox and Catholics, that the Eucharist, in the Eucharist, the bread and wine become the true, real body and blood of Christ. This is the supreme moment of our meeting with the Saviour through Holy Communion. And we Orthodox also speak of the Eucharist as a sacrifice offered for the living and the departed. At every celebration of the liturgy we pray for the departed as well as for the living. And indeed we pray for the departed at all services. The link between the living and the dead is reinforced through mutual prayer. We believe they are praying for us, not just the saints, but all the departed, and we pray for them. So a sacrifice offered for the living and the departed not a new sacrifice, because the sacrifice of the cross is unique. Not an additional sacrifice, for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is complete. But a continuation of the sacrifice of the cross. The sacrifice of the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the cross are one and the same, one single sacrifice. In the Orthodox rite, the clergy receive the bread and wine separately, first the bread in their hands, and then they drink from the chalice. The consecrated bread that is the body of Christ then is placed in the chalice, and the laity are given communion from a spoon. But they receive under both kinds. It is, in principle, possible for an Orthodox Christian to receive communion at any celebration of the Eucharist, provided they are spiritually prepared. In practice, Orthodox go to communion rather less often than Catholics do today. In the Byzantine and post-Byzantine period, there grew up an unfortunate practice whereby many of the laity only went to communion once a year at Easter or on Holy Thursday. Uh, uh, even quite devout Orthodox tended to go to communion only four or five times a year after careful preparation and fasting. Now I'm happy to say 
communion has grown more frequent in the Orthodox Church. And long may that always be the same. In the fourth place, there is the sacrament of confession or the sacrament of repentance, as we often call it, of penitence. Though we don't usually call it in the Orthodox use penance. In the confession, a penance may be given to the person who's come to confession, which might be that they were to say certain prayers or to do some additional fasting or even not to receive communion for a certain period. But today in the Orthodox Church, very often the penance is omitted, so it's not an essential part of the sacrament. The sacrament of confession in the East as in the West is a secret conversation between the penitent and the priest in the presence of Christ. The priest will begin by saying certain prayers, one or more. Then the penitent will say what is on his or her heart. The priest will ask such questions as may be necessary, give such advice as may be appropriate. And then he pronounces absolution. In the Orthodox Church we don't have confessional boxes and the penitent and priest are not separated by a grill. The sacrament takes place in the open in the church and at the decisive moment when the priest is giving forgiveness to the penitent, he lays his stole, his epitrachelion, the scarf that he wears round his neck, on the penitent's head and then places his hand on the stole, makes the sign of the cross over the penitent. During the main confession, in the Russian use, both priest and penitent will stand in front of a desk on which rests the gospel book and the cross, signifying the invisible presence of Christ. In the Greek use, they may both sit, but of course they will stand for the actual absolution. At that point, the penitent may choose to kneel. But we don't have normally the practice of the priest sitting and the penitent kneeling beside him. They either both stand or they both sit. And it is emphasized in the prayers, especially in the Russian use, that the priest is not the judge. Christ is the judge. The confession is not made to the priest, it is made to Christ. The priest is only a witness. In the Russian use, before confession proper begins, the priest says, I am only a witness, bearing testimony before Christ of all the things you have to say to me. 
how often do Orthodox go to confession? That varies very widely. In the Russian church, the Romanian, the Serbian, the Bulgarian, it is normally required that a person should go to confession every time that they receive communion. Now, this was reasonable enough when uh, people only went once a year or three or four times a year. Now that more frequent uh, communion has been established in many places, it becomes something of a burden for the priest to keep hearing confessions every time. So in many places now, even in the Russian and other Slav churches, the Romanian church, the confessor may bless the penitent not to go every time to confession before communion unless they have something special on their heart. In the Greek use, confession has never been made mandatory. It has always been left to the conscience of the individual whether they come to confession. And so it is not required that you have confession before every communion. I am afraid that in parts of the Greek-speaking Orthodox churches, confession is somewhat neglected. During the Turkish period, there were few educated clergy, and so confessions took place only when a special priest came. Not all priests hear confessions. You have to have a special blessing to do so. But in the Church of Greece, efforts are being made to revive more frequent confession. Confession can play a very important part in the continuing life in Christ of the believer. It is the renewal of baptism, restoration, to friendship with our Saviour. Not a duty, but an opportunity. Not a difficult thing we have to go through with, like a cold bath, but an opportunity to share in the love and mercy of the Good Shepherd. How long do confessions take? That all depends. In a Russian church, where before the liturgy there may be many people wanting to have communion, queuing up for confession, perhaps the confession will be very brief, only a one or two minutes. But ideally, it should take longer. There should be the opportunity for the penitent to open her or his heart to bring their self, not just their sins, but their self, before God. There should be the opportunity for the priest to talk with the penitent. I belong to a relatively small parish and I like to space confessions out, not to have them just before the liturgy but at other times in the week. And I would see a quarter of an hour as wise for a confession. It could be longer. In case of necessity, where there are many people waiting, it has to be shorter. In Holy Week, priests will spend many hours hearing confessions. I understand that confession has grown rather infrequent now in the Latin Church. That is sad, 
because confession can be a great source of support in our Christian journey. What of the other sacraments? We have ordination, holy orders. We have three major orders in the Orthodox Church as in the West, deacon, priest and bishop. And then there are various lesser orders of which really only two continue in use in the Orthodox Church, and that is reader and subdeacon. But there were other such offices, acolyte, candle bearer, exorcist in the ancient church. In the Orthodox Church, most of our priests are married, but they are required to marry before ordination, before they become deacon. And if a priest's wife dies, uh, he is not allowed to marry again. The ancient ideal of a single marriage is preserved as the rule for the clergy. But we do not see an incompatibility between the married state and the priesthood. Our bishops, however, are all required to be unmarried. They may be married priests whose wives have died, but they must all take monastic vows. Then there is the sacrament of marriage. The Orthodox rite has two elements here. First, the blessing of rings that corresponds to the Western rite. But then we have in the Christian East a further ceremony different from what prevails in the West. The bride and the groom are crowned. In the Greek tradition, usually with garlands of flowers, alas, often artificial flowers today. In the Russian use, the marriage crowns are of metal, of silver or gold. They're usually held over the heads of the bride and groom rather than actually placed on their heads. And the crowns signify the joy of the marriage feast. They are crowns of kingship and queenship because the married couple are king and queen in their own domestic kingdom. But they're also seen as martyrs' crowns. In true marriage, yes, there will be great joy that husband and wife will be pleased to share their life together. But even among deeply devoted couples, that can sometimes be difficult. Marriage requires on both sides sacrifice. Each partner in the marriage is called to lay down his or her life for the other. So 
crowns of victory and joy, crowns of kingship, but also crowns of martyrdom. In the Orthodox Church, we allow divorce if the marriage has broken down. And we allow remarriage after divorce. We do not do this willingly, but we see the granting of divorce and the permission to remarry as an expression of divine compassion. We all of us fail, not just over marriage, but in so many other ways. The Church does not condemn us forever, but gives us a helping hand to make a fresh start. That, in the simplest terms, would be the way we understand the granting of divorce. Divine mercy. We only allow three marriages, whether after the death of the partner or following divorce. In principle, the second marriage service after divorce is different from the first marriage service and has a penitential character, but it is not always used today. Marriage is the sacrament of love. That perhaps is the best definition is the definition given by St. John Chrysostom. Then, finally, the seventh sacrament, anointing. In the West for a long time, though no longer today, this was regarded as extreme unction. You were anointed before your death. In the Orthodox tradition, it has never been limited to those in danger of death. It is the anointing of the sick. So a Christian could ask to be anointed for any serious ailment, before an operation, for example, even if there was no expected threat of death. In Holy Week, usually on Wednesday evening or Thursday morning, we celebrate the service of anointing in the church and all present come forward to be anointed. This is an important occasion in the church's year. Uh, our church in Oxford is always packed for this service. As we are anointed, we are told for the healing of soul and body. Anointing is the sacrament of healing, confers both bodily healing and forgiveness of sins. But we might say that all the sacraments are part of a total process of healing. All through our Christian life, we come to be healed by the love of Christ in one way or another. Thank you for listening to the Athens and Jerusalem podcast. If you enjoyed the lecture, you can purchase complete courses by Metropolitan Callistos online at theosisacademy.org.
We look forward to next week when we will release another lecture from His Eminence. Until then, enjoy your weekend and God bless.